For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at the game this year, although you could pay for a cardboard cutout of yourself to show up at the stadium, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Whether you want to bet on Super Bowl champ, for my money, it's probably the Kansas City Chiefs again, or the World Series champion, or NBA offseason. They have everything from game spreads to totals to team, player, and coaching props. Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It literally never closes. So head on over to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, everyone. Welcome into this week's Believe in Wizards podcast. I'm Matt, joined as always by my co-host, Larry Hughes. Larry, we are now uh, toward the end of the NBA season, potentially. The Lakers are now up 3-1. Do you think this is over? Are they going to end it tonight? I think they call it, you know, that good old gentleman sweep. And that good old gentleman sweep. I mean, the, the, I think the Heat are playing well. They're playing hard. But again, we talked about that size early on, and that size is is a big factor, especially when it's winning time. You know, game four was the first game where it felt like an NBA Finals to me. I felt like the Lakers kind of could have had their way completely for both of the first two games. They didn't really look into it game three or just looked more, you know, out of sync. But game four was like the, there's no rhythm. You know, everybody's kind of just like, gumming up everybody else's offense and and it was just about whose star was going to get them over the top at the end or in the Lakers case two stars and th- that's sort of how I felt watching that we're like this is this is kind of what I was hoping for yeah man I, f- I feel like uh Brian let the cat out of the bag with or, or you know the after the post game of things that come out you know with the texting of the teammates and you know just really the talking about just the pressure mm-hmm. and if, if you're watching that game every little bit of contact or every shot that kind of rolls off the basket, you can see body language or you can see comments to the ref. So watching the game and understanding kind of the commentary that was before the game, you can tell there was some pressure that was going on. And I think that that makes for a game that's kind of, you know, a little bit touch and go because there's so the players are putting so much pressure on everything that they do, just passing the ball, making outlet passes, I mean, everything looked like it had so much pressure on it, especially mm-hmm. for the Lakers. Yeah, if you lose that game and now it's 2-2 all of a sudden, things get weird. I mean, we've seen it before, and and he personally has had a couple series where, where that's happened to him in the past. So, you know, if they lose that game, everybody puts all of that on him. So every time you saw Kyle Kuzma throw the ball away or something, Lebr- you know, LeBron was so demonstrative, and I hadn't really seen that from him for much of their playoff run, at least. 
Yeah, but I even think just even the, just the total, you know, understanding of the game, I just don't think Miami has enough. Yeah. I mean, as well as they can play for two games, maybe even three games, I just don't think they have enough to win four basketball games against the Lakers. And, sure. you know, if I'm in that locker room, we're not talking about that sort of pressure, you know, with game four. We're just talking about doing what we do. And maybe that brings a little bit better calming effect on the guys. But you can really tell that there was, you know, everybody had, had some pressure on them. For me, I'm assuming that was kind of like the last gasp from Miami, you know, like having Adebayo back gave them a little boost. It seemed like they gave them everything and still couldn't pull out the win. So I'm personally kind of expecting like at least a double-digit Laker win in game five. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Do you think uh, LeBron's performance in, in game four kind of gives him the edge on the finals MVP race there? I think so, just depending on how game five goes, because AD did have a, a subpar game three. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about voting and you talk about looking at splitting hairs, uh, then that's probably the game that you're going to go to because they were pretty pretty similar uh, in, in those other matchups. So if you had to pick one, you know, you're going to look for a game that, you know, maybe one outperformed the other. Uh, and game three was a, was a big game. So I would say that Braun is, is probably is going to win the uh, MVP. Everything that was talked about this year with him getting the regular season MVP award and stuff, like Anthony Davis would have to have a huge last game or or whatever to to get one over on him. Uh, There's been a lot of conversation about the declining ratings and we're down 40% viewership from past years. It's been attributed to social justice and, and messaging. And you saw Mark Cuban going back and forth with Senator Ted Cruz all week on Twitter and I just assume that it's, hey, football is on and it's kind of weird. And for me, as much as I love basketball, the every other night of it, there are definitely certain games where like, I got shit to do tonight. Like, I can't watch this whole game. And you have cord cutting and and all this stuff. And games are nine o'clock on the East Coast. I just attribute that to just sort of like other circumstances personally. I'm, I'm sure there's some percentage of people that are bothered by players taking a stand or, or, or whatever. but you hear the, you know, just keep it to basketball crowd. But I just, I got to imagine next year, assuming a regular things get semi back to normal, we'll be back where we were at in past years. I mean, I see it the same way. Basketball at, at this point, it is an outlet. It is an opportunity for you to step away from some sort of real life uh, and, and real life issues. But there are a lot of things going on that are way more important uh, than the basketball games. Obviously, you can dial in, you can tap in on any device or any sort of outlet to figure out what your team is doing. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to watch the full game. You know, a lot of people have jumped back into their families, mm-hmm. you know, so we're carpooling, we're riding around, we're making sure that we're spending, you know, that good quality time. And if you're going to miss a game, then you're going to miss a game. Uh, but every other night does pose a little bit of an issue because you can get a little bit burnt out, uh, especially depending on what time those games are. But for me, I would just look at there's a ton of other things going on. There's a lot of other more important things that are going on. And basketball is just that part of that piece. So I don't think we should try to defend it. You know, I just think that we should understand that if someone has something else better to do, then we take it for what it, you know, for what it is. Part of the commentary is about how like, oh, you know, the NBA, they're, this is going to hit their wallets. They're going to see it. I promise you right now, that their next TV deal is bigger than the one they have 
currently, and it has nothing to do with ratings. It's a guaranteed percentage of eyes on TVs, and sports is the safest option for for networks and advertisers. So th- that anybody thinks that a few less people watching in a pandemic year is really going to hurt their wallets long term, I think they're crazy. No, I mean these guys are exciting. You know, they're, they're in the best, they're the best of the world, the best to do it. The brands that they're building globally, just the amount of, of skill that they have, the amount of fanfare that they can can grab. I mean, expanding through boardrooms and other areas of, of life now, you know, into the classroom and things of that nature, into the tech space. So, you know, these guys do a great job of being who they are and they're the best, you know, 450 plus uh, that we have to offer. So they'll be back. I see it, man, with no fans in the stands. I mean, I, I'm sure that the owners are really ready to get back into the and back into the arenas. Maybe better than any sport, the NBA has been sort of ahead of the curve at figuring out new avenues, new ways to get eyes on screens, new markets to get into. So I just think the whole thing is is just sort of blown out of proportion. You've also got all the debate stuff. There's a lot of competition. Me personally, I'm still consuming as much basketball-related content as I, as I can. I, I recently just churned through Andre Iguodala's book that he wrote. A couple things in there that, that I wanted to bounce off you is written after his 13th season, so uh, I think you, you, know, you can relate to where he's at at that point in his career and stuff. So one of the things he kept talking about is how much more important a routine is the later you get in your career. He was like, you know, when I was 20, I could get off the bus. I could, you know, eat a bag of, eat a sleeve of Oreos and go play a game. And, and now it's conditioning and stretching and meditating and, and all these things. Was that the case for you too, Larry? Did you see that from other players as well? Where like the longer they were at it, the more regimented they have to be. I think so. As life changed and the longer you play, your understanding of preparation became greater. You understood what it was going to take to have your body produce the results that you wanted. And yes, you can get, you know, those some results from eating, you know, McDonald's quarter pounder. But five, six years from now, after you've tried some different things, you start to put the certain things in your preparation that'll help you, you compete at a higher level. But yeah, you learn that stuff over the years. And it's great that you can reflect on that and know kind of the points of where, you know, your habits start to change. There's been a lot of talk about just how much NBA players put into that and the professionalism that goes with it now, maybe more than 20 years ago. But one of the things he said was absolutely like, it was a mind blower to me. And I'm curious if this is just him maybe taking it to a different level. But he talked about how he could almost tell what he weighed based on how his body felt, you know, the difference between 217 and 220. Uh, Like from his joints or a couple years, he said he played in the mid 220s and he felt stronger but his body wore out a lot quicker were you regimenting down to the pound and stuff like that or or is that a little extreme that's not extreme I mean even to this day before I get on the scale I know how much I weigh okay I mean even to even to this day I mean you feel it on how you move how you walk it's one of those things man when you're a professional player and you know you, you have to be efficient and you know what it takes to get to point a and point b at a certain speed you can tell if something's off. I mean, just like a mechanic in a car. I mean, you can tell if something's off. But that that's a really good one because I do that today. I try to guess what I weigh before I actually get on the scale. So that, that's that's a funny one. Yeah, I was I did it as an audiobook and I was listening to it. I'm like, damn, all right, and taking that to a to an extreme here. 
I got to 205. Okay. I got to 205. I started training camp at 205. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've always played between 188 and 194. I mean, mm-hmm. that was my 188, 194. And I started training camp at 205. And I just knew something wasn't right. And it took me three, four days to get back down. And I was again, 194. And then I just, I felt comfortable there. He was talking about how he's been mostly vegan, but he plans his meals out based on what he weighs. If he needs to get back up a little bit, that, that becomes steak night. And like, I was like, all right, this is why he is, uh, he's still hanging around there, you know, pushing, pushing late thirties. So for me, as somebody who was put on the COVID-19 pounds, uh, I, I can feel the difference in that, but I, I don't know if I could do it to the, to the individual pound like that. Uh, a couple other funny little anecdotes he had in there. He, he mentioned in, that Antonio McDice told him early on that when you retire, the thing you missed most is that bus ride with the rest of the team on the way to the game and just like getting hyped up with everybody and that sort of like, you know, the, the pre-anticipation of the game. Is that, is that fair? That's fair. I think that's very true. Uh, and those have been stories that have been told, you know, to every class that's transitioning out of the league, I believe. It's just mm-hmm. the amount of time that you spend with your teammates is obviously greater uh, in most cases than you spend with your family members because of that commitment of travel and just being committed to being great. Sure. And when you get a chance to get off the plane at one o'clock in the morning and taking those bus rides to the hotel. You have conversations, you talk about kid, you know, families and what, who can wake their kid up, you know, at, at a certain time just to play those games. And then also in the locker room. I mean, those are the things that I miss the most is just being in the locker room and it's the one of the guys sort of feel mm-hmm. uh, just having conversations about everyday things, you know, letting everything kind of uh, expand because you're in a room of, people that are, are doing the exact same thing you are. So that's that's definitely a fair statement. I also told a funny story about early in his career playing against Paul Pierce. And I said a young player on the court was trash talking Pierce a little bit. And Pierce didn't say anything to him the whole time. He was quiet. And then they got to the free throw line. And it was dead silent. The young guy was still talking at him. And Pierce said, listen, if you don't make more than $10 million, shut the F up. You don't ever need to be talking. Was Paul Pierce ruthless like that? I mean, that's that's pretty awesome. That that was pretty common in those days. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was pretty common in those days. But yeah, a lot of guys that you wouldn't expect to throw a one-liner at you or to, or to make a comment that would kind of stick you to the core. But yeah, Paul would definitely give it to you in, in, in that way for sure. You know, you hear the KGs, the Chris Pauls, like there's certain guys that are sort of legendary for their shit talk and the Gary Payton isn't obviously a big one long-term, but I'd never heard like any kind of Pierce ones before that. I guess I can see it. Yeah, I, I, got, I got a name for you. When I was a, a rookie in Philadelphia uh, playing against uh, the Sonics and GP, obviously one of the, the, the best to, to ever do it on the court and also trash talking on the court. Mm-hmm. And he had Vernon Maxwell with him. And I made some comments and was talking a little bit of trash to GP because the play had happened. Oh. And before I know it, Vernon Maxwell was like his pit bull, his bodyguard. Oh, shit. Okay. And he's yapping and telling me as soon as the game is over, everything is going to happen to me and whatnot. Oh. And, and after the game, it was a handshake and a, I like what you're doing young fella. Okay. So that's good. Trash talking. Yeah. Trash talking. It, it happens and it'll come from all different places, but it's usually, it's usually just to test you. 
Yeah, that's not a dude you want to make mad long term. You know, like uh, you, you definitely heard some some Maxwell stories over the years. So yeah. uh, that that's pretty funny. I think that's the stuff that that fans always like to hear too, because you you never really know what the inner workings on. You see guys chit chatting a little bit, but mics don't always get all that stuff. And I, I think that's something that probably goes on a lot less today overall. You don't hear any famous stories. You just see it on Twitter now. Yeah, man, because it's, it's so friendly. Like, it's so – and, I, I, you know, the fines are definitely greater, and, and there's a camera, you know, everywhere you turn. So to, to try to make a little slight comment, somebody's going to catch you, and it, it will be, you know, will be posted the next day. So it is a little bit tough. But, it, you know, a lot of these guys, they're, they're, they're really close, and, and mm-hmm. they don't have those kind of conversations or those combative sort of challenges many times probably some amount of like brand consciousness too you know like it's just you've got money on the line so if you're that guy that's always f-bombing in front of kids and stuff it's i've sat behind benches a couple times and and you definitely hear like some stuff amongst teammates like you know how the f did you miss this pass or you know you went the wrong way or blew up the play like i imagine that's probably more common today than than against opponents yeah uh, Larry, I got one thing I just want to bounce off you, and I, I had a specific example from earlier in the playoffs, but it's just more of an overall thing. I've noticed more of this playoffs than the last couple of years is on one, Jeremy Grant had almost a wide open lane to the basket, and Alex Caruso sort of went to challenge him, and rather than go up with it, he kicked it out to a semi-contested guy, 4-3, who missed it. In your day, you would have tried to dunk on somebody that did that or at least draw contact and and get to the line. I get the emphasis on three-pointers, but analytically, you know, free throws are just as good, if not better. So I'm a little surprised by how hesitant guys are to to try to finish through contact. Is that that something they're telling them? Is that personal preference? But it just seemed like a lot of plays in every game where you could kind of point that out. You know what, I thought as the bubble is going on and I'm trying to understand when teams will be back in arenas and when they'll be back into their practice environment and just figuring out when I can get into an arena or get into somebody's practice gym to figure out what's being coached and how they're being coached. Because it is, it's almost like a standard within the the, the league now is that those Mm -hmm. guys get all the way to the cup and they're kicking the basketball out. I don't understand it. You know, I'm looking for you to, Help me understand it. I mean, do you have any answers? I mean, the question goes to you. It's like, it makes absolutely no sense. And at the same time, if you're talking about the analytics of it, it still makes no sense. If somebody's like, hey, I don't, even in a contested, or, or sorry, an uncontested 20-footer, we'd still rather you take a more slightly contested three. You can argue that math to me, and, and I'm with you. But a, a shot from five feet with a guy that's six inches smaller than you is always the thing I would think is the best shot. And I, I can't just, I just can't justify that. And, and even if somebody told me like, here's the math, we've proved this is a better shot. You could just never break me of that idea because it goes against everything I, I have taught growing up, I've coached little kids, you know, just, it, it just seems nuts. It just seems like the players will use that to, to their advantage. I mean, they, they call so many fouls and it's an right. offensive player's game. So just any little contact uh, attacking the basket it's normally going to result in some sort of, you know, in some sort of call, whether you're shooting two free throws or you just get a bucket or whatnot. So it's, it's, it's frustrating to me to watch the game because if I'm playing now, I shoot like 35 times a game yeah. because I'm going to take those little short little shots. And I guess, you know, the accumulation of, accumulation of those shots 
uh, can be an issue, I guess, with the analytics, but it's very hard to understand why you would attack the basket to put pressure on the rim and then, you know, you have an open look and you're kicking it out for uh, a three-pointer, which you get one more point for a three versus a two, which is, is very confusing. Or you're Markeith Morris and you get an offensive rebound and you have Kendrick Nunn hanging on your arm and you kick it out to Caruso, who's not exactly like a knockdown, like Duncan Robinson or somebody that's going to like absolutely knock it down like that. I could see more so. And as good as Rondo has been shooting in the bubble, like that's, I would still rather just take my chances. Yeah. They're turning down good twos to take bad threes. Mm -hmm. And obviously they're, pushing guys to learn how to shoot the three off the dribble, to learn to shoot the three off the move. So this, again, is, is what's going on at the, at the top level, and it's just making its way down, you know, into the younger groups, you know, into college, into, you know, high school, into the youth groups, because now you have to teach these kids how to play that way. You know, even, even if you don't agree with it, you have to teach kids to play in that way because that's what they'll be coached on. So it's a little bit tough for me, but I can adjust to it. But again, I, I don't, I don't understand it. Even at the college level, that would make a little more sense. Shorter line, you know, a little less ticky tack fouls are called guys are banging you around in the paint a little bit more. Like you could even make that argument to me a, a little bit easier, but yeah, that was it's just a couple of times I've been like, all right, I got to walk away from the TV for a minute. Whatever you learn growing up is, I guess, sort of how you think about the game to some extent. Yeah. A definitely a dynamic change. All right, just switching gears for a little bit. I want to ask you something a little bit Wizards related uh, that I've been meaning to, to mention. Right after the bubble, it came out that Victor Oladipo and Miles Turner, well, Victor specifically said he wanted out of Indiana. And I guess it's sort of rumbled that Miles Turner also wants out. Those are two names that have already kind of been mentioned with Washington as a possible destination. Oladipo is from the area, went to DeMatha. Turner sort of provides the skill set I think the Wizards would look for. Obviously, they don't have the assets to go for both guys, but either one of those names seem to make sense to you as a guy that, that you think they should look real hard into. I like a big in Miles Turner. I think that in his situation in Indiana, with the players that they brought in, he kind of got put on the back burner. Or maybe he didn't produce as well as he needed to in his first couple of years as they wanted him to. And I, I like what he brings to the table when he's playing and when he's active and when he's confident in what he's doing. So that, that, that is a good name. The Oladipo deal, I mean, you got Brad and John. So it's like, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, but he's also a guy that I feel like he's going to come back healthy uh, from that injury again talking about confidence and actually wanting to be in a place that, that you're in, that factors in how well you play. And a kid that's from the area, I mean, those are two really good names, but if I had to pick between one, I would definitely go with the big in Miles. I'm 100% in agreement. The Oladipo one, you know, the proponents of it were, well, you know, look how many teams run three-guard lineups to great success right now. I'm like, which teams, though, really had great success with that? I, I mean, Oklahoma City overachieved with with a lot of three guard lineups, but I don't see them here in the title game or anything and sort of a harder sell for me. And, and the knock on Turner, I guess, from folks has been, well, bigger centers like Joel Embiid push him around. Well, Embiid pushes everybody around. So if you're basing, you know, how good a guy is on his ability to guard one other player in the Eastern Conference, really, I just kind of think that's a silly, silly knock against him. 
Yeah, and I look at him as a guy that's going to compete, right? I mean, even if Embiid's going to get the best of him, he's still going to compete and he's going to push back. So that's just playing with force. And, you know, Embiid's going to put a lot of guys under the basket and a lot of guys are also going to just give up against him. So which guy, which guy are you going to be? And there's been, um, you know, a lot of effort on the Wizards side to have good character guys. And, and by all accounts, Turner specifically is is really well-liked by pretty much everybody. Nice, well-spoken kid. So I think he'd be a good fit culture-wise. All right, folks, we're going to take a little mini break here. When we come back, we will be joined by this week's fan guest host. And we'll get a couple more questions from Larry here and see where we're at. We're back with this week's fan guest host, Rashid Ali. Rashid, I'm going to kick it over to you to, to ask away here. So let's let's hear your first question. Uh, first off, how are you gentlemen doing? We're good, man. Thanks for joining us. All right. Yes, thank you. All right. So my first question is actually about uh, player development, players over a certain age. And I was wondering, um, you know, when, when a player is a high usage player, and I'm kind of saying this with John in mind, uh, players a high usage player like John, how hard is it for them to change their DNA? And are there any good examples of people you've played with or maybe just ones you can think of off the top of your head who have successfully done that later in their career? Well, I, I think a lot of players definitely have the ability to change, definitely have the ability to not necessarily be in the starting, you know, the starting five or be the one or two guy, uh, but can definitely impact the game. And your skills are, are definitely growing. You know, even though you're getting older, your skills are, are growing. You know, your hand-eye coordination, if you're a professional athlete, you, you're getting better with that. So that's why you see a lot of players uh, later in their career shoot the basketball better. Uh, they're stronger, um, have more reps, uh, and hand-eye hand, hand coordination uh, just get, gets better with time. There are a lot of players now that have made a, you know, a transition. I mean, you think about a Chris Paul, a uh, guy that – always wanted the basketball in his hand, you know, had the basketball in his hand, you know, 95% of the basketball game. Uh, even had a guy like Chauncey Billups with him uh, with the Clippers and still wouldn't allow Chauncey to split that time. So you can have a transition of, of how you play, and, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes, especially if you're talking about John. A couple guys like Vince Carter is one that kind of obviously tapered off in his career. Uh, even saw Carmelo a little bit sort of change his role to try to fit in there. I mean, he's still still scorer and stuff, but it, it not to the same. I need the ball every time and and sort of that the the post ups and and things like that. And then Iguodala, we we just talked a, a little bit about about that and a little bit about his mindset transitioning from a, a full time starter to key sixth man on a title team. So. It's all about, I think, guys wanting to play that role and, and what the priorities are at that point in their career. Mm -hmm. Next up is a, kind of a, a question about coaching um, in general. And, uh, and first, I, was gonna, I wanted to ask you, first, so it's a three-part question, but first, throughout your time in college and in the NBA, who was, what, what coaching staff or what coach was your favorite to work under and, and why? Uh, well, first in college, I had a coach, uh, Charlie Spoonhauer who was a really good coach, uh, really down to earth. Um, I was a, a kind of a laid back kid. So uh, just his personality with me and how he built the relationship and we were able to communicate and talk and how he cracked jokes. And I wasn't a, a guy that, you know, that laughed too easily. So uh, he was able to, you know, break that, break that ice with me in a way that was very special. And I call him a coach to this day. He's passed away since, since then. Uh, but also Larry Brown. Uh, Larry Brown for me, I had him twice. Uh, he was, I was drafted in Philadelphia under Larry Brown uh, as a young 19-year-old kid. 
we didn't really get along and we, and we didn't see eye to eye. And as I continue to mature, I continue to grow, I continue to travel around the league and see different situations. I understand, you know, now, especially now, what I was learning from him. And I know that now, and I know that he was an impact on me because when I'm working with young people today, I'm saying a lot of the same things that he said to me when I was drafted at 19. I also played with Larry Brown in the playoffs uh, with, the Charlotte, with the Charlotte Bobcats. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like you don't always like what the coach is saying at that moment, but it's what you put in your subconscious that that coach has said or done, or acted or reacted, that you rely on later on. And you understand, okay, this coach was cool, but this coach, man, and Larry Brown for me was was this coach, man, because, again, I use a lot of the, the teaching tips and the, the points that he used uh, on me, with me, to our, our young people that I work with today. Okay. That's a, that, that I can definitely appreciate and understand that. You couldn't, you couldn't tell me anything when I was in my early 20s. And uh, I look back and I have some mentors that I, I had to reach out to later in life and say, I got you. <laughs> I understand what you were trying to say and do. Uh, good stuff. So uh, my, my next question is just about kind of the, uh, the daily schedule and rigmarole of, of what you go through as, as an NBA player. Um, how is it divided up between both like dealing with the physios, you know, dealing with your knocks and whatnot, um, then film time, um, and then like if you have two days prior to a game, let's say, how much time is spent going over video from the other team versus like practicing your sets and plays versus just doing some development work? Yeah. Well, each day obviously is different, but your morning is always you're waking up and you're getting prepared for practice, right? And if you're getting prepared for practice in that morning, there'll be some sort of film session that's associated with that morning practice, whether you're going over what you did the night before or you're beginning to start the scouting report for the team that you're going to play in a couple of days. So, right, so you'll have that that early morning meeting. Uh, you'll get that, that first workout in. You'll get that practice. You'll either – review what you did in that last game or begin to implement what's going on in that game that's coming up. And then from that first workout, you're going into your body. So you're going into, you know, your hot tub, your cold, your stim, your ice, uh, whether you're doing any sort of training regimen to keep store, you know, keep injuries down or whatnot. But that part of the day, right after that workout, you're going into work on your body to make sure that you're healthy. And from there, you're going into, to, excuse me, you're staying with the body because you're, now you're going into nutrition and now you're going to fuel the body. And normally when you're fueling, fueling the body, you're at home. So then we're talking about we're watching film. And now, we're, again, we're watching film. Maybe we're watching film on clips for me on my offensive end or my defensive end. Or maybe I'm watching clips of how our team played in the second half. Or again, maybe that film is dedicated to who my matchup is in the next couple of days. Gotcha. And from after watching that film, it take me into the evening, I'm getting some skill work in. I'm getting back into the gym. I'm getting some sort of work in, whether it's ball handling, whether it's spot shooting, uh, whether it's a cardio workout. And that'll close out your day, but you're finishing up your day again with nutrition. So mm-hmm. it's an around-the-clock sort of situation where you're always having your basketball, always having your knowledge, and at the same time making sure that you're taking care and preparing your body to either recover or be prepared for that next battle in the next couple of days. That's the body 101. 
Larry, I recently heard Patrick Beverly say that he watches the last three games that whoever his primary matchup for his next game has, has just played. So if he's got to guard Dame Lillard, he watches all of their offensive sets where he had something to do with it for the last three games. Is, is that overkill because he's a, a studier, or do you think that's probably like a common amount? I think, you know, each guy, their brain works different and they're able to retain a certain amount of information. So mm-hmm. for him, you know, obviously watching three games, that's probably a bit much for me because I'm more, I'm more current. So I want to see the last game that they played, and then I'll watch any of the clips that they have on the offensive end or defensive end. Um, and then you start to apply that information to what the actual game plan is because, you know, what he did in that last game may be depending on what sort of matchup they had on the block or what sort of matchup CJ might've had. So he wasn't as aggressive, you know, in that situation, but just understanding what sort of players that you're guarding against, there's tons of film and tons of clips on these guys. So you're preparing uh, at every turn, right? I mean, you're preparing at every turn. There's not a clip you can't get of a guy if you're going to see them the next night. Next question is a little bit of a shift in a different direction. It's kind of about player development. And um, it's it's something that in general, and not just players, but people in general. The development of people fascinates me. And, um, you know, I, I've, it seems like so many players come into the league and they have all these amazing, they have length, they got great athletic skills. They've got the skills that are there, but they just get, they get pigeonholed into being a glue guy or a support guy. And they're rarely, it seems, able to transcend that. Whereas, and, and, and my question is, you know, is that about just that player's mentality? Um, and is it on them to try and become more of an like an alpha quote unquote type player, or is it also on the coach coaches and coaching staff to instill that in them? I think it starts early. Um, that process starts early of, of building that alpha and building someone that you know understands the basketball game, building that system guy that can play. You can plug him and play uh, within any system, uh, so that changes. So there's a, there's a difference in the sort of player that you're working with. But again, when these players are in high school and they're college, they're being recruited for a certain role, but they're also being coached in a way that how comfortable is the coach, right? Because if you have a point guard, but you also have a dynamic wing, if I'm the coach and I'm concerned about winning – I'm probably going to put that ball in that point guard's hands because I'm comfortable with that guy. Now, I do have a dynamic wing. If I give this guy the basketball, he may kick it around a few times, but eventually he's going to develop into something special. But in the short period of time that these guys are in school or that are in college, a lot of times their college coaches don't get a, a chance to get comfortable with them in, in time that allows them to develop different skills. If you think about Bam in a way that he was at Kentucky and he was a guy that played defense, blocked the shots. But if you watch Bam play in on the EYBL circuit, he was also a guy that can pass the ball, rebound the basketball, take it from defense to offense and make plays. Kind of sort of what the things that he's doing now in the NBA. But he, was, he wasn't allowed to do those things in college. So as an executive, when we're scouting these players and we see what they're doing in college, if you just watch what they do and they never get the opportunity to kick that ball around and to make things happen and and be dynamic, they're all great. Then you start to pigeonhole these guys into the comfortable spot. 
of length of being a guy on the wing of, of just all these other scenarios because you didn't give a chance, give that player a chance to actually spread and to grow because of just the levels of basketball that it takes to make it to the professional level. How much time do they actually get to explore and expand their game before they make it into the NBA? I definitely hear that. And, um, and you may have to rewind that one to catch a lot of all of that, that information, but it is just the point of, of a lot of times these players that are sitting on NBA benches can start on different teams that are actually, you know, in either the same conference. It's just, it's just a, a difference of opportunities and it's a difference of situations. You know, when we talk about player development, that's what you need is you need the opportunity to develop, right? You just don't go out and you work on your skills. You have to, if you're talking player development, then you need the opportunity to get out there and develop. And some, and in most cases, the player, they don't have that opportunity to continue to develop because we're looking for the next shiny toy that's in the draft that we're going to now going to draft over top of this kid before he actually got a chance to actually develop into what you may have saw a couple years ago. Did you feel that going from Philly to Golden State, Larry? Like with, with Allen, you were never going to be like the primary scorer, but once you got to, to the Warriors, there was probably more opportunity to, to shoot and create and, and do other things. Well, you know what? I was, I was kind of good either way. Uh, just my personality, I was good either way. I was going to make mm. it happen, you know, in any way I could. If I had to backdoor 10 guys a night, I'm going to backdoor 10 guys a night just so I can get the opportunity to shoot the basketball. Um, but I did need that experience in Golden State to kick the basketball around and to figure out if I was actually able to play in this league. I, I, I did need that experience because, you know, as a young kid, and, and you think you should be starting and you're not starting, so you can kind of get unsure of, of where you fit into this. I mean, it's a grown man's league, so I did need that experience. Uh, but at the same time, I think I could have adjusted to the role that I had, you know, when I was drafted. So uh, speaking of, of working with the next generation, I understand that there's a uh, there's a young man out of St. Louis that's uh, doing doing pretty well, Larry Hughes Jr. What's that like? Both uh, you know work having a son who's extremely talented and and uh, a rising star, and and also kind of being both a coach and, and a uh, parent, a father. Uh, well, I'm, I'm his coach. I'm his parent. I'm his trainer. I'm his nutritionist. I wear a lot of hats, right? Because I understand what his, his journey is. His, his journey is he wants to play at the highest level that he can play basketball. He, he wants to be successful on the court and off the court. So my only job is to make sure that he has those opportunities to be as, as successful as he, as he wants to be and can knock down and, and grab as many opportunities that he can grab. So it's fun for me. I don't put myself in the situation. I'm not the mean dad in the stands. I don't jump out. I don't scream. I don't even necessarily coach him during his competition because, again, once it's, it's his time, it's his time to shine. So we have a really good relationship on how we communicate and how we work. Uh, we talk basketball. We're talking basketball because it's for him. It's not for me. And, you know, how I raise my kids, I think they understand that. So our foundation is, is really based on – you know who I am as dad, right? You know I won't steer you wrong as dad. So we're going to take that same approach when we're talking about the sports space, of things that you need to do, how hard you need to work, how many shots you need to get up, who you need to challenge within your, your competition. 
you know, what sort of players you need to watch and sort of understand if they move the same way you move, if they're doing something that I think you should be doing. If I see a conditioning drill, I'll send it over to him. So I just play that role of just making sure that everything that he wants, that I can try to help him uh, achieve it. Very cool. Uh, Rashid, thank you so much for joining us. Those were great questions. Appreciate you coming in prepared and, and like we said, bringing the A-game. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, hey, man, so thank you, man. appreciate you. All right, Larry, how would you think that one went? Good stuff? Oh, that was good. Yeah, that, that was good, man. It's good to have, you know, fans jump on and bring up really, really good questions because, again, some, you, sometimes you don't get a chance to ask these questions to a guy that's been there and done that, and it's good to get fans' perspective, but it's also good for me to share, you know, my thoughts as well. Yeah, those were in a little different direction than the last couple, too. So it's nice to have some variety, and, and hopefully, you know, people get different perspectives that way. So we appreciate uh, Rashid jumping on there. Next week, we'll be joined by our next fan guest host, Chris LeBron. So Chris, uh, look for a message from me here later today about coordinating that. And we will check you guys uh, next week. Again, remember to rate, review, subscribe, and, and all that good stuff. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done